Welcome to Book Notes, the Ohio Channel's conversation show featuring Ohio authors and books about Ohio. A prolific writer of award-winning science fiction, nonfiction, columns, and web pieces, John Scalzi may be best known for his Old Man's War series. A former president of the Science Fiction and Fantasy Writers of America, Scalzi writes from his home in the village of Bradford, Ohio. And thank you, John Scalzi, for joining us today. Thank you. So, New York Times bestselling author, Hugo Award winning. Th there's, there's all of these things, uh, uh, 2016 Governor's Arts o o Award, mm -hmm. um, all these different awards. You are very well known as an avid blogger. Sure. And this is at whatever.scalzi.com. Yes. Right? You, your blog. You are very open in your blog. Mm -hmm. So, you're a writer, mm -hmm. and then you find time for this exhaustive blog. <laughs> well, I think actually one leads to the other. I mean, I was originally working in newspapers, and then I was at AOL. In both places, I had a column. And when I left AOL, I didn't know what to do with myself. So I was like, well, I've heard of these things called blogs. I'll just put one up, and I'll use that to stay in shape for writing columns, because I assumed or hoped that, that one day I would go back into uh, journalism or to have an opinion column. Now, as it turns out, I didn't, but I've been doing the blog for 17, 18 years now, so it's pretty much all the same. So in many ways, I'm a blogger first who happens also to be a novelist. And I do think that one kind of feeds into the other, because when I'm writing fiction, I'm kind of trapped in that world, I'm busy creating that world, but at the same time, John Scalzi the human is still involved in the world that we live in today. And I want to have some outlet to talk about what's going on in that world. And I don't want to put it in my fiction. It makes no sense to put the modern world into science fiction, which takes place 200, 300, 400 years in the future. So a blog is a great outlet for me to say the things that I want to say about the world that exists today um, without getting on, onto a soapbox in my fiction. It's prolific, though. You don't like. <laughs> you don't add just like a few things. You you have very well thought out mm -hmm. and several thousand word entries in in this thing, and you don't feel like it burns you out or anything like that. It, you do have to make sure that there's a balance. I have to get through the amount of writing that I need to do on the book first before I do anything on the blog, because uh, if I get distracted by the real world. Um, then it makes it very difficult to get back into what I'm doing kind of fiction-wise. And so I do generally have a schedule when I'm writing fiction, which is from 8 a.m. in the morning until 12 p.m. I'm writing the fiction, and then when that's done, then I turn to the rest of the stuff. Now, sometimes I, I fiddle with the, the hours, but you will have to have blocks of time where you're saying, I'm pulling the internet out of the wall, and I'm not going to look at it. Um, to focus on the the fiction writing, but this is the in terms of the length of what I can write. I mean, a lot of that comes back to the fact that you know, for many years, uh, my very first job out of college, I was a journalist. You know, or I worked in a newspaper, and so you get used to writing a lot, and you get used to writing it at speed and relatively clean copy. I mean, you can't be precious about your writing when you have a 3 p.m. deadline every single day of your life. Um, and so the journalism training of just being able to go, go, type it all out and get it all out done has been very helpful in being able to, one, write books, uh, and two, have enough left in the tank afterwards to write in the blog. And also, you know, quite frankly, um, after I'm done with the work of writing the novels, um, for me, writing the blog is fun. It's kind of a busman's holiday, mm. if, you, if you want to put it that way. 
because, you know, quite honestly, this is what I enjoy doing. I enjoy sharing my opinions. I enjoy writing. I enjoy, um, you know, taking these thoughts that are in my brain um, and putting them down in the, into the world so that I really know what I'm thinking about it. So um, you've had a few, of course, all your entries are notable, but you've had <laughs> uh, a few that have gone viral. One of them, I think, was uh, uh, the, the 2012 on being poor. Sure, sure. It, that uh, was actually 2005. Oh, well, there you go. <laughs> yeah, no, it's been, it's been around for a while. Wow, and it's still relevant now. Yeah, um, uh, unfortunately. Well, well, yeah, in, in preparing for this interview, I, I went back and, and was reading it. I think what you may have cut the comments off in 2012 or 2014 sure. yeah. because people were still commenting, commenting on this. Right. Now, as a writer and, and, and someone now who has a, a, has a contract with Tor, sure. right? Um, yeah. So do you, are you ever concerned that... Is, is there ever a rights issue in the sense like, okay, I'm not going to write this in a blog because I'm going to use this in, in a story? And do you ever worry about the whole commodity aspect of it? No, I really don't. Um, for example, the, the Being Poor uh, story, which is actually a really good example. In 2005, I wrote it in the uh, wake of Hurricane Katrina where uh, New Orleans was flooded. And there were a, a lot of people who were left over. They lost about 1,000 Americans in, in that hurricane. Um, and I had some people... Um, some of them who were very close to me were just like, why didn't they just leave? So I grew up poor. I understand a little bit about, um, you know, the world of poverty and what it feels like. So I wrote about what it felt like to be poor. Not saying this is why someone's poor, this is why someone did it, but just to say this is what it was like. And at the very end, it's like, you know, being poor is not being able to leave or what had people wondering why you didn't leave, making that point. And it went viral. It basically went everywhere. Um, and then I started getting newspapers and magazines and books, people asking, can we use it? And my response was, yes, take it. Take whatever it was that you were going to pay for it and donate it to a local hunger charity because, quite honestly, I want this to be distributed. When I'm writing on the blog or when I'm writing, um, you know, for that sort of uh, dissemination. I don't really worry about the rights issues. I don't really worry about uh, the issues of you know, copyright per se. I want the stuff that's in the blog, generally speaking, to go far and wide. I want it to be attributed to me, you know, and I don't want people to you know, use it and bundle it and make a profit off of it, uh, but I want it to be seen. So for me, that's not, generally speaking, a huge issue. Also, I'm kind of opposed in a general sense to taking contemporary politics and inserting it into uh, science fiction books. It's not that uh, there can't be a place for it, but for me, that would be like you and I right now having a super passionate, very angry discussion about the alien and sedition laws, right? Where I would be very pro-Adams and you would be very pro-Jeffersonian and we would be coming to blows on it, right? It's just not going to happen. We may actually have opinions about that, but it was 200 uh, you know, years in the past. By the same token, to have someone exactly parallel in science fiction, something that's going on in the current world, um, is a little goofy. Now, it doesn't say that you can't or shouldn't or that people haven't taken uh, contemporary themes or ideas that were important in the day uh, and put them into books. You have a book right here, a Lock-In, which is a book that I put out a couple years ago. And uh, some of the themes about in that book are disability, 
uh, gender expression, uh, things relating to the appropriate role of government, all the things which are things we are discussing now, which are of, of topic and interesting now, um, but they're not an exact one-to-one -one parallel with what's going on today. And I think it's really important, uh, for me at least, to, to make that separation because otherwise it's just, you know, the whole narrative cranks to a stop while, while the author gets on a soapbox and says, now let me tell you what I think of Obama or let me tell you what I think of George Bush or whomever. And that really, for me as a reader, just entirely throws me out and I don't want that. Um, so for uh, my own fiction, I don't do it. Hi, I'm John Scalzi, and today I'm going to read you a short story which is called When the Yogurt Took Over. It's a science fiction story, it's very short, uh, and it's what I like to think of as a complete science fiction story in which it has an interesting speculative idea and also uh, worries about the ramifications of that interesting speculative idea, and it all gets done in 1,000 words. When the yogurt took over, we all made the same jokes. Finally, our rulers will have culture. Our society has curdled. Our government is now the cream of the crop, and so on. But when we weren't laughing about the absurdity of it all, we looked into each other's eyes with the same unasked question. How did we ever get to the point where we were, in fact, ruled by a dairy product? Oh, as a matter of record, we knew how it happened. Researchers at the Adelman Institute for Biological Technology in Dayton had been refining the process of DNA computing for years. In a bid to increase efficiency and yield, scientists took one of their most computationally advanced strains and grafted it into uh, bacteria commonly used to ferment yogurt. Initial tests appeared to be failures and acting under the principle of waste not want not, one of the researchers sneaked some of the bacillus out of the lab to use for her homemade yogurt. A week later, during breakfast, the yogurt used the granola she had mixed with it to spell out the message, we have solved fusion, take us to your leaders. Well, it's interesting, as, as fans, one of the, the nice things about the blog, it does really give you an insight to you. You were very open about the contract with Tor. Sure. You were offered $3.4 million sure. over 10 years. Yeah. And it was very interesting because there was a little bit like, you know, oh my gosh, that's a lot of money. I went and looked at the uh, 2015, uh, some of the writer's salaries uh -huh. of what they're doing. James Patterson, last year, mm. $89 million. Yep. Wrote 16 books. He has co-writers. Yes, he does. Yeah. So Stephen King, mm -hmm. um, he came in somewhere uh, $19 million. Sure. Um, E.L. James, mm -hmm. the Fifty Shades of Grey fan fiction, yeah. uh, made, I think in the first year, she made $95 million. Yep. And last year, with no books, right. uh, $12 million. Sure. George Martin, author of Game of Thrones, made $12 million last year. Right. So you have this perspective, and you think that this is a big pot of money, but then you take it over 10 years, and right. then you look at, like, this is also for novels you have to... Deliver, and I don't think it's for ten. It's for thirteen. It's for thirteen. Yes. Yeah. So all of a sudden, this puts everything in perspective. It's like you're working for this money. Oh, I'm definitely working for this money. I mean, it's it's one of those things where um, before the the article came out, I spoke to my wife about it. I said, "We're going to talk about this deal because we want people to know about it. We're going to have to talk about our income." And my wife. Uh, 
uh, many years ago had forbidden me to talk about my income, uh, not because uh, she had a problem with saying how much we made you know, to people privately, um, but because you get to a certain point, it's over about like, if you make over a quarter million dollars a year after eventually it becomes, sounds like it's bragging, mm -hmm. right? Um, so I said, now people are gonna know that that's there. It's really actually kind of interesting. I mean, two things. Um, the way that you've just positioned it is like, you're hardly making any money at all uh, when it still comes out to a base rate of $340,000 a year. It's a good salary. It's okay, it's, yeah, it, we're yeah, doing all right. Yeah. And, then the, and the thing that I point out, pointed out to people is that's actually the base guaranteed rate as opposed to, I also have an audiobook deal which adds additional money to it. I also have foreign rights which adds stuff to it. I also have royalties from books that are already coming in which adds to it. Uh, I already have, uh, uh, things like um, uh, other various movie and TV rights and so on and so forth. I made a million dollars last year. And the thing about it is is that it's been very, uh, it's been one of those things that because I was open about it, because just part of the whole craft of writing, you do open up yourself immediately to people going, well, is it really that much amount of money? Or is it, you know, where does it really come from? Or is he actually uh, that successful? And I just look at them like, Stunned. The first year that I, I worked for a newspaper, uh, the Fresno Bee in California, I made $22,000 that year. You know, And I look at what I made from writing this year and I'm just like, I cannot believe it. You know, I was blessed, like I said, to make a ridiculous sum of money uh, from writing last year. The vast majority of the writers I know uh, are making, uh, you know, close to what the average is uh, for an American writer or novelist, which is about $15,000 a year. The average advance for a science fiction book is about $12,000. The average advance for a fantasy book is about $15,000. Most writers, almost all writers, uh, have day jobs as well, which I think is actually a really good thing because um, having a job that, that pays you a salary, uh, gives you health insurance, you know, puts money into your 401k, uh, means that you have the freedom to write whatever you want to write as opposed to um, having to scrabble for it. The thing is, is that when we look at it, even you know, however much you want to slice up what I've made over the, the course of 10 years or will make over the course of 10 years, and the fact that I do have to work for it, still at the end of the day, I'm definitely um, part of the writer's 1%. And it behooves me to be open about where my money is coming from, how I've made it, uh, why the mechanisms work the way that they do, and to share information down the line. Part of my duty of being in that 1% is to make sure that the 99% are fairly compensated for everything that they do. Part of my responsibility is to share all the information that I have so that they know um, what it's like, one, at this level, and B, what they can do, hopefully, to get closer to where I am. Because I'm well aware as anybody else that um, you know, my circumstances are work, yes, but also luck, being in the right place at the right time, and being smart on the back end about the financial stuff. And this is the thing that I think is really important, the financial stuff. Because there are so many creatives, not just writers, but artists and musicians and so on and so forth, who either are scared or uninformed or sometimes contemptuous of the fact that this is a business and that you have to approach it as a business. So you share information, you share of this is what's in this contract, you share here are the points that I've made that you should be thinking about for your next contract. You do all of that um, and you make it better or easier or uh, at least make sure that their, uh, other writers are more informed so they can make the right uh, decisions for their business and make 
the money that's coming to them. You mentioned about uh, your responsibility, and I think this is yet another proof of what a nice guy you are, because <laughs> you've assigned that to, to basically help you are advocating for other writers. Mm -hmm. And so you have a you have a responsibility that, that you've assigned yourself to, to other writers to understand the value of, of sure. their product. Um, you certainly have uh, a responsibility to your readers, mm -hmm. um, and you've proven that again and again by the bestseller status and, and these awards that, that you're getting. I'm wondering a little bit about uh, Elizabeth Gilbert has spoken a, a lot about the creative process and also sometimes the fear after Eat, Pray, Love, like how do you top mm -hmm. a book like that? Do you ever face that kind of fear with the responsibility you have um, to your readers and like all of your proven uh, Con, you know, your proven novels before, mm -hmm. like the next one, do you ever get that moment of like, ah, it's gone, the muse has left me? Oh no, I don't believe in the muse for one thing. Um, the, the, if you wait for the muse to show up, the muse is busy. She's got other people to visit and you know, she's got to take time off and feed her pets and do whatever it is that she does, right? You can't wait around for her. She shows up, that's great. In the meantime, you actually have work that you have to, to get done. Um, and like I said, I was a journalist, um, and part of journalism was understanding that you can't, you can't just sit around. You have that deadline, you have work to produce, you have to do it. Um, so that was great training for just put your butt in the chair and get it done. Uh, so there, that, that's part of it. But the other thing is, no, I don't really worry about you know the next book in terms of the panic attack of it. It will it be good or will it not? I mean, part of it is you know, uh, part of it is ego. At this point, I've been a professional writer for a quarter of a century now, um, uh, and I've been doing okay with it. Uh, I have confidence in my baseline ability to do my job, uh, right? Uh, so that's that's part of it. The other thing is that um, my toughest critic is myself. I'm super bored, and so uh, if I'm writing and, I, and I'm bored writing it, then I know that you're going to be bored reading it, and I'm not going to do it. There was one point where I had this book called The Android's Dream, which did okay, and we contracted for a sequel. And I wrote the sequel, and I got seven chapters in, and I realized that uh, it was a terrible book. It was just bad. The writing in each individual scene in each chapter was perfectly competent. Um, but it wasn't telling a story, it wasn't going anywhere, and so I called up Tor, I said, this is a terrible book, I'm not going to deliver it, I'm going to write you a new book, uh, and it will be in the Old Man's War universe, is that okay? And they were like, Old Man's War universe is my best-selling universe, that will be fine. <laughs> and so I wrote a different book, uh, and the whole point of it was, I could have just sat there and ground out a book, and it would have been, and it would have come out, and it would have been competent, and some people would have liked it, but I would know that it's not good. Uh, and so when I get negative reviews, generally speaking, I don't really have a problem with negative reviews because I know that the book that I put out is the best book that I could um, given the circumstances. And I don't worry about, uh, and I don't uh, worry about whether or not the muse has left me and I don't worry about whether I'm competent to do it. What I worry about is making sure that what comes out of the, what comes out of my fingertips is stuff that I'm enjoying. If I enjoy it, there's a good chance you're going to be able to enjoy it. If I'm not enjoying it, I know for certain you're not going to be able to enjoy it. So uh, the pressure of topping myself, no. Um, the other thing about that is, quite frankly, two things here. The first is every career has curves. 
You know, every career has peaks and valleys. If you think that your career is just going to be an unending ascent, then I, you know, applaud your delusion. Good job. Uh, but that's not going to happen. For myself, um, to think that anybody else out there is going to look at my entire career and say everything that he's done is absolutely brilliant, I don't expect that. I, I, and, I, and this is what actually I see with people. They're like, I love everything you do except for that one. Oh my God, I don't understand that at all. Why did you do that? Were you high? Was there, did, you, did you have a payment on a house? Can you explain that one to me? And I'm delighted when that happens because it's like it's proof that you know, not everything works for, for everybody. But it's not always the same book, you know. Um, sometimes it's this uh, little novella I wrote called God Engines, which is this really horrible, depressing book where literally everybody dies at the end. And I had a great time writing it, but everybody dies. And people are like, did you need a hug? What, what is going on? Or uh, Red Shirts, which won the Hugo, which was uh, probably uh, my biggest seller right out of the gate, is the book that has the uh, largest amount of division of people who really love it and people who absolutely hate it. If you know going in that there's always going to be divided opinion about what you do, if you know that every career has peaks and valleys um, and eventually you know, goes into decline, then you stop worrying about having to top yourself every single time. What's important is, is this particular work good? Is this particular work something um, that I am proud to put out? If that is the way uh, you feel about it, then out it goes. And then the world does what the world does with it. Maybe it's hugely successful. Maybe it is something where people go, that one was for you. you know. And maybe sometimes people just, everybody agrees that this was horrible and we should all bury it in the background and agree never to speak of it again. But regardless, as long as you feel you're doing good work, then it's all fine. Now, you live in Ohio. Yes, I do. Um, so you are an official Ohio and a writer. And mm -hmm. you are you're a writer that lives in Ohio writing books. Um, how do you think Ohio shapes your narrative? Well, one of the things that I actually enjoy doing is putting Ohio in the fiction that I'm writing. Uh, what The very first book that was published, Old Man's War, the very first novel that was published, um, opens up uh, in Bradford, Ohio, which is where I live with uh, the protagonist at a uh, cemetery, which exists, uh, visiting the grave of, of, of his wife. Um, and part of what was really interesting about that is that not only do uh, we as Ohioans have an opinion of our own state, but people outside of Ohio also kind of have an opinion. So when I put John Perry as an Ohioan, that kind of put him in the middle of America. He's a average American. He is, you know, what is exemplified as Midwest kind of Ohio, just kind of an average guy doing his job, off he goes. And so it was really interesting to see people respond to the fact that he was from Ohio and their opinions of it uh, uh, going out. Ohio has been important to me in a, in a number of ways uh, as, as a writer. I mean, the first thing, you know, quite simply is, uh, with the exception of my book, Agent to the Stars, um, all my novels uh, have been written in Ohio, in Bradford, Ohio, in my office, uh, you know, that overlooks um, Amish going down the road. And it sort of tickles me that so much science fiction is coming from that place. It's also been super useful in the sense of, I don't know if you know this, but relative to lots of other places, it's fairly inexpensive to live in Ohio. 
which for a writer, because you know, I'm doing uh, pretty well now, but there are times, you know, in my past where, you know, having the uh, low cost of living in Ohio has been super useful. And the, the thing is, I have friends who live in New York and Los Angeles and San Francisco, and they're like, oh my God, I don't know how I'm going to pay my rent. I'm like, I know how you can pay your rent. Move to Ohio. It's, it's nice here. I have an entire New York City block of lawn. This is insane, but it turns out it's great because nowadays I travel so much that when I come home, one, uh, Ohio just feels incredibly normal and that kind of gets me back to my, my setting. The other thing is, is that then I get to go onto my five acres of land and not see anybody. Uh, and that actually is uh, useful as well. So for things that are both um, you know, creatively speaking and for things that are just daily, day, uh, in and out, day-to-day uh, -day life, uh, living in Ohio has actually been a pretty wonderful thing. That is awesome, and unfortunately, we are out of time, except I do have four quick questions, our little speed round here. Go for I'm gonna it. I'm gonna ask you uh, some real quick questions, just uh, want a short answer for this. Okay. Pen or pencil? Pen. Pen. Truth or fiction? Mm, truth. Hmm. I always feel like I'm judging when I say, hmm. It's very interesting. You were judging, and that's okay. <laughs> Your fiction's so good. Uh, yeah, I know, but you know. <laughs> I live in fact. What, what are you reading right now? I am reading, oh geez, what am I reading right now? Uh, the Everything Box by uh, Richard Cadre, which is delightful. Okay. And then what would the Hugo Award-winning John now say to the younger John just starting out as a writer? Enjoy your hair. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Well, um, we, we didn't get any chance to talk about it, but it goes without saying this is an, an, an excellent book, um, Lock-In. Um, is it true there may be a sequel to this? There is going to be a sequel to Lock-In. It's going to be called Head On and it will probably be in 2018. This is great. It, it combines the genre of science fiction with kind of like a hard-boiled detective fiction, so it all really works uh, well together. Thank you very much for your time. It's been wonderful speaking to you, and I totally believe what everybody else has said now, that you are truly a great guy. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you very much.